This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. You have nothing to lose but your mind. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor, and we're the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 115. It's the time of release. We are all in quarantine. Lockdown mode as you are. And as husband and wife, Lauren and I are hunkered down in the confines of the Speakeasy studio. And Leo is coming at us live via satellite at Speakeasy Studio B in Eagle Rock. (laughs) 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 Oh, this is crazy, man. How are you doing out there? Dude, it's crazy, man. It's like I've been home steering clear of any zombies and hoping not to become one. Yeah. It's just. Like, seriously, I, I think I've fielded more phone calls than ever in my whole life. People just asking some more random, crazy questions that, you know, they hear a rumor and it's like, is it true if I can do this and take this? And I'm like, no, no, stay home. Oh, yeah, because, of course, uh, Leo is uh, is a scientist. That's his day gig. Yeah, I mean, but it's just, you know, common sense, general stuff, you know? It's, it's simple. It's like, look, stay home, wash your hands. You have to go out, come back, whatever you touch, just wash your hands, stay away from sick people. Keep your distance, and you'll be fine. My routine's been, I'm going to go out, right? I'm going to shop. I'm going to come home. My clothes come off. I go straight in the shower. Everything. You come out clean. It's kind of, that's kind of the routine if you work with nasty stuff in labs, or if you're a nurse or your doctor, that's pretty much the routine. With, or you, you have know, kids. You look. Yep. Yeah, exactly. They're like, when you come home, don't say hi to anybody, not even the dog. Go straight to the shower, change, ditch the clothes, put new clothes on, and you're fine. I'm over this. I'm I'm like ready. I'm I'm over my kids is like what <laughs> Yeah, that's the horror. It, that's the horror movie right there. It's just it's insane. Like <laughs> trying to do work and then like having four kids, two which are really little. They're it's right. just like it's nonstop and it's been raining and I can't send them outside. And when I try to send them outside, they don't want to go outside and they just want to like drive me crazy and they're fighting and they don't understand. And you should be lucky that you're yeah. here. <laughs> right. Any kid is just over being inside and they want to be with their friends. And it's like at the point where they're asking, when do I get to go back to school? It's sad. And and I feel bad for my fifth grader who's like missing out on a lot of like graduation stuff. And oh yeah, lots of people are missing out on weddings, yeah. vacations, graduations. Yeah. I mean, it's there's a lot. There is a lot. It's, yeah, it's, it's it's crazy, man. It's yeah. like for for the first time in my life since I was sixteen, since I had my first job when I was sixteen. First, I like I have no responsibilities. I'm, I'm home and I'm like. Okay, what do I do? You know, I can give you two playing, responsibilities. Two, yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. You want? I can give you four, <laughs> four responsibilities, Leo. Okay, no, let's oh, keep take, one, the and you can take three. Oh man, I have nothing. You know, it's like, what am I doing? Playing guitar. I'm painting. I'm watching. I'm watching horror movies now, more so than ever. You know, I'm well, lucky you, I'm lucky you. <laughs> because you know what. There's like people and they're they're like single or they have like older kids and they're like doing all this like 
stuff that I would love to do. Learning another not, language, you know, yeah, getting painting, into a hobby. But, you know, binging, there's and, tons of people also working their ass off right now. People we know yeah, who work at pharmacies or people at yeah. doctor's offices who are like on the front lines of a war right now. And it's like yeah. serious. Yeah. And then I, my day job working in radio Everybody turns to broadcast media, television, radio, things like that. And so that's all that's going. Everybody's broadcasting from home right now. So it's very busy on that end, too. Yeah. Dude, I work at one of the biggest uh, research hospitals, you know, uh, schools here in L.A. And it, it was like a week ago to, you know, where, where they said, you got one hour. You got, you have to leave. Like, we're, we're, shutting, we're shutting down. We're done. Go mm-hmm. home. We, we can't protect you. Like, you're on your own. Yeah. Everybody was let go. Wow. And basically to protect the two hospitals that are on campus, because uh, one of them is the biggest hospital in L.A. It's, you know, county, uh, you know, hospital. And the other one's a university hospital. But you know, they wanted doctors and nurses that work there to be protected. And it's like, well, only way to do that is shut down everything. You know, and they did. It's crazy. And trying to like. My God, it's like they talk about like the freshman 15. It's like the COVID-19. I'm going to gain 19 <laughs> pounds with this fucking oh, virus. Yeah. All I want to just- eat is chocolate and chips and cookies and shit and <laughs> watch horror movies. But let's talk about some of the horror movies and things that we've been watching. Leo, is there anything in particular that you've set your mind uh, as a distraction for the past little while? Dude, I had on this West Craven kick and I, and I pulled up this movie that... When I saw it, it, this movie disturbed me. It's a, it's a B-level movie. In fact, Wes Craven even, I think, disowned this movie. This, this came out in 1986. It's called Deadly Friend. Mm. Oh, I, I remember seeing the poster art for that thing. Yeah, I get, I get this. It stars Matthew Labiroto. I can't pronounce his name. I think that's L- Labiroto. And Christy Swanson. Oh, and from she, Buffy. She was Buffy 16. the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Buffy, yeah. That was her first movie. She was 16. It's a really bizarre, it's like half sci-fi, half horror, but then it becomes really like slasher horror. And I forgot this movie has this one scene. When I first saw this movie, I was like literally eating a hot dog when I was a kid watching this movie. And there's a scene that almost made me throw up. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) God, Leo. It involves actress uh, Anne Ramsey at the scene with Anne. Oh, I'm sorry, with the uh, Christy Swanson. And all I'm going to say is it's it's the scene involves a basketball. Definitely check it out. It's 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 one of those you know under the radar Wes Craven movies mainly because he went through so many hassles making this movie that he didn't get to make his version of it. Or I guess there's a director's cut out there on the DVD somewhere that does show the unedited and stuff like that. But it was changed so much that he just kind of like blew it off. But still a really good movie. We recently checked out As Above, So Below, which we actually, but we've been told to see this movie. I can't believe we missed it when it came out. It was uh, back in 2014. Yeah. And it was Lydia Hurst's previous guest and friend of the show and friend of ours, Lydia Hurst, who put out a list of films that she's watching during self-isolation and quarantine. And this was on that list. And we were like, okay, we've seen this people mentioned this yeah. over and over again and this this did it showing up on Lydia's list so we went and saw that on uh, it was Netflix I believe yeah god it's good it's really good it was the catacombs right in Paris yes yes it takes place in the and it was actually filmed in the catacombs they got permission to film in the catacombs and it wow, was uh, crazy. directed by John Eric Dowdle it's kind of like Indiana Jones Tomb Raider Paranormal Activity and the Devil's Due all, all rolled up in one 
Yeah, it was yeah, scary. Yeah. There were some really scary parts. I remember watching it and being really pleasantly surprised because I, I wasn't not expecting much. And then I came out thinking, wow, this is really entertaining. It was well done. Yeah, super exciting. And right from go, too. It's not boring for one fucking second. And I love all right. the like anything based on like real life occult things yeah so right. fascinating like a dark song and then uh, of course this and they're looking for the philosopher's stone any harry potter fans out there <laughs> like ourselves yeah. that's a that, you know apparently a real thing right if you go back in in the history books and look up uh, alchemy and things like that I, in fact i read there was this one book it was i thought oh, fuck i forget the name of it's it like um muta libre i believe something called the silent book it was one of these alchemic texts that is only in pictures and apparently shows how to create the Philosopher's Stone, Damn. which, oh, which wow. gives you eternal life and turns metal or anything into gold. So, yeah, I'm all about it. But, yeah, check out As Above, So Below. And the same director put out a horror flick called Quarantine, if you're interested in making it a double feature. But I got to tell you, I don't want to watch films like Quarantine or Contagion and all these movies that people are kind of saying, oh, yeah, you got to watch these and these horror films. No, I don't want to. I want to escape from what's going on right now. I don't want to like revel in it. No. Dude, I don't get it. I, I went on Netflix and like seriously, it tells you the top movie. Yeah, they're yeah, all like, like outbreak, <laughs> right. quarantine. Yeah. I'm like, why? No. Why are like, people watching that? These why? people, I think they're like, oh, maybe we can learn something from the movies. Like maybe no, they figured Hollywood. it out. I know, but like, I don't understand. Like, it's like 4D, a- right? Like watching a horror film in a horrific situation. <laughs> There's nothing scarier. Maybe that's it. Oh, wow. And that's why I have no toilet paper. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For me, it's like going in the bathroom and doing Bloody Mary or something, you know? <laughs> right. Don't mess with it. No. And then we also started finally going through the chilling adventures of Sabrina, which what an oh, exceptional yeah, yeah. show. And it, yeah, it, the only reason fun, we, the only reason we hadn't really approached it is because what well, we're like three seasons in now. So it's like 30 yeah. plus hours of shows. But now that the kids don't have to get up super early, therefore we don't have to get up super early to take them to school. We can have these late night horror movie nights, start them at like 1 a.m. Like we'll do after this <laughs> and, you know, knock out a couple episodes of the show. And it's so dark. It's spooky. Tons of scares. Amazing set design. Everything we love. And it's got that sassy kind of Jennifer's body, Buffy attitude, which is amazing. Right. And we also watched, not necessarily horror, to all the boys, P.S. I still love you. Oh, that's the one that stars uh, Madeline Arthur, right? From uh, Colorado Space. Yep. That's it. She's awesome. So you should check that out on Netflix if you like rom-coms <laughs> and who doesn't who doesn't <laughs> exactly so so uh, as as you know as you hear we are practicing social distancing which means we'll be doing some upcoming interviews remotely we talked to elliot lawrence last episode from motherland another oh, fantastic show so fun leo have you started yes. watching motherland yet have you checked it I out did yeah yeah wow I, I didn't expect something like that it's, it's so unique and fresh and yeah, I mean, I, I was I was really blown away. It's just it's just something different, you know. The whole premise is very interesting. Just to quickly go over it, that the witches three hundred years ago made a deal with the U.S. Army to to help protect the country in exchange for right. leniency during the Salem witch trials. So it's fucking brilliant and so much fun. And there's pentacles on the yeah. s- the star the flag. The- 
the flag. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's really it's kind of like it. It's kind of like you know how they did Abraham Lincoln uh, Vampire Hunter. Vampire Hunter. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's kind of like a parallel, right? It's kind of like oh, here's a witch version, you know, of of, of U.S. history, you know. There's plenty more horror films and series coming to streaming that we'll be sharing with you as the focus of some fun upcoming chats. We'll be doing those remotely. We also have a few we taped in recent months that have yet to be released, like this one right here, which is our chat with former LAPD homicide detective Robert Souza. How we were put in touch with him was through his granddaughter, the lovely and talented Danielle Souza of the band Dead Posey, who we talked to back in episode 64. Wow. It's a long time ago That's in Boo Crew yeah, years. They were, they were such a great, those guys were such a great guests, man. Yeah. And the fact that she walked in that day, right, with a book. That's right. She and brought the book to that interview. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, her granddad shows up. Yeah, he was really yep. cool. They were so cute. They just, they have a really special relationship. And I like that I got to see that. Such a great guy for all those years as a homicide detective in LAPD during those crazy years throughout the 60s, 70s, right? In the, in the 80s, you know, when everything was so volatile here, people, you know, don't remember that we had serial killers left and right every every six months it was like a new one and then we had you know the night stalker richard ramirez you know so it was, a, it was a wild time in la and it was so awesome to talk to him about that kind of stuff and his book chronicles one specific investigation that him and his partner were a part of that involved the wonderland murders which uh, uh john former porn star um john holmes was a part of it was also called Four on the Floor, the Laurel Canyon Murders, known as yeah. one of the most gruesome mass murders in the history of Los Angeles. In the convo, you're going to hear about Robert and Tom's experience at the crime scene, and it actually is the first videotaped crime scene. I believe that you can actually watch part of this on YouTube, them going through and wow. showing what they see. Ugh, yeah. no thanks. The crazy thing about this crime scene is compared to like everybody, you know, everybody talks about the Manson murders, right? But this one was way more bloodier, way more graphic than what you saw with the Manson murders on Cielo Drive. Well, you're about to hear all about it. Also, find out what Robert Souza has to do with Harrison Ford, William Shatner, and Josh Hartnett. This is a really fascinating one, and we thank you for listening along. Let's get into episode 115. Listener discretion is advised. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is a man, former military, who spent over 20 years with the LAPD. 17 of those as a highly decorated homicide detective, earning the Meritorious Service Award for his contributions to serial killer cases, then as private investigator. After retiring, he became a member of the Writers Guild, was brought on for a number of projects, including script consultant and technical advisor for the entire seven-season run of CBS's Emmy-nominated and award-winning Cold Case. In 2003, he co-wrote the Harrison Ford and Josh Hartnett film Hollywood Homicide, based on his own life on the force and as a part-time real estate broker. In 2017, he and his former partner Tom Lang got together to write the book Malice in Wonderland, which serves as the chronicles of their work as lead detectives on what is known as one of Hollywood's most gruesome moments, the case of four unsolved deaths infamously referred to as the Wonderland Murders. We are honored to welcome Robert Souza. Thank you so much for being here, and congratulations on this amazing book. 
Well, it's my pleasure to be here. I take it you read the book. Definitely, yes. yes. <laughs> from that wonderful <laughs> intro. First of all, I want to get into a little bit into your entrance into the world of investigating homicides. Was it something that you fell into during your time with the LAPD or was it the nature of these cases that compelled you to start working on those? There was something when I, as a young cop, to be well-rounded, you were supposed to write traffic citations. And I was in uniform for only about a year and a half. That's about all I wanted to do. My brother had been on the department for about seven years and he said, Bob, get out of uniform as soon as you can. But I hated tickets. It's the worst PR on the planet. <laughs> and, and every party I went to, that's all I want to talk about is the ticket they got. Sure. And I said, I don't care about your tickets. So I thought if I was to work detectives and I worked murder cases and I could put really bad guys in prison, nobody could complain about that. Good point. Nobody's yeah. going to complain about putting a murder in jail. So that kind of motivated me. And it was a challenge. I had done other detective jobs, but... Homicide was a real challenge, and uh, I just kind of fell into it. I was one of the youngest guy in the police department to go almost straight to homicide. And, oh, wow. Uh, what, age, what age was that? They threw me into the deep end of the pool right, <laughs> right away. <laughs> we had a series of uh, elderly women who were being murdered and, and raped, and uh, they asked me to uh, head up a task force uh, in the investigation called the Westside Rapist. And that was really my first really major case and uh, from there it just kind of it followed me and so as other task forces came up with serial killers along the way uh, i was just kind of selected to work because i was reasonably successful but i my first murder case was at the palladium ten thousand people with a body in public view and we call it the leather jacket murder back in the early 70s and a kid it was during a big uh uh, Soul Train concert, and afterwards it was the beginning of the of the Bloods and the Crips, and they killed a kid for his leather jacket, and uh, we solved it within about four hours, and we had a lot of help from the kids, one of the kids' grandmothers, because she came in and kid didn't want to cooperate with it. He saw everything, knew who did it, but he wouldn't tell us. So his grandmother came in and she started slapping him, <laughs> and uh, we just watched. We said, wow, "Wow, look at this!" And the kid finally told us everything because his grandmother was our helped us solve that whole case. But wow, <laughs> yay, grandma! That's so cool. So, yeah, yeah, that and so Hollywood just had a lot of interesting cases, and and from that, we had a downtown uh, robbery homicide division was citywide jurisdiction, and since the West Side rapists involved about six or seven different geographical divisions. They asked me to come downtown and work citywide, and so that's kind of how it got started. And Tom Lang was about in the same kind of boat. About how old were you at that time? Uh, I was I barely had five years in the job, about 26, 27 years old. Wow, that's really young. It was young. But I grew up fast in kind of a rough town. <laughs> yeah. I, I could spot a bad guy from 100 yards, so <laughs> that really helped me. I grew up a lot of thugs. So. so you've investigated hundreds of these cases and during a very interesting time, particularly in Los Angeles crime history with many high profile cases in the late 70s, as we were saying, in early 80s, things like the Manson family murders and the toolbox killers, a night stalker. Was there anything kind of palpable in the air that contributed to creating an environment where these things just kind of seem to be everywhere? Nobody has an answer for that. It was a, it was a, an anomaly. We had as many as four serial killers working simultaneously, wow. independent of each other, Jeez. in the city and around the city. And it had never happened before in history. It's never happened since. And Los Angeles was the serial killer capital of the world. And we had detectives from all over the country, 
We even have, we had them from Scotland Yard, Germany. Everybody was worried this was going to spread internationally because we were having so many. Every week had a different serial killer. And uh, the experience we got, we didn't have computers. We didn't have cell phones. Everything was good old-fashioned legwork. And we solved them all. We were fortunate. Uh, we used to give San Francisco a hard time because they never did solve the Zodiac murders. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those... We didn't understand it. We didn't know what was going on, but it was one of those things where you go come to work and you go, oh, "What? What? We had three over the three murders over the weekend. Looks like the same guy. Oh, we got another serial killer going." So it was just constant, one task force after another. We taught, uh, we lectured out of state. There was a tri county area around Arizona in Phoenix, and we lectured on homicide investigation, and uh, we had crime scenes, mock crime scenes. And one day on the break, a Phoenix detective came up to me. He had over 25 years with the Phoenix Police Department. He said, you realize you guys handle more murders in a weekend than we do in our entire career? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it dawned on us. Wow. wow. We're handling five or six a week. You know, it was, it was pretty amazing what was going on. We had over, almost a thousand murders in the city at, at a certain time. Unbelievable. <laughs> so Wonderland aside, what were some of the cases that you were a part of during that time? <sighs> Probably one of the biggest cases at the time was the uh, freeway killer. And there were actually three different freeway killers, but I was more involved with William Bonin, who killed 21 young boys. And it started off with uh, Randy. Uh, Randy Kraft was a, one of the other serial killers. And we had a task force with about 45 to 50 murders, all young men. And a lot of them uh, were homosexuals, and it was, uh, it was dubbed at that time the... Uh, uh, homosexual murders. Well, the press didn't really jump on it too much. They weren't that interested at that time. But all of a sudden, some innocent young boys who weren't homosexuals were now becoming victims. And that was where Bonin came into this thing. Mm -hmm. And so now, all of a sudden, the press got all over it. And he was, but we, we eventually caught him after he did, killed 21 young boys. Jeez. And uh, I actually, 14 years later, when all of his peels ran out, I actually attended the execution at San Quentin and actually watched him breathe his last breath, which not many tears were shed over that one. Did he admit to him? Pardon me? Did he admit to them all? Yeah, there, was a, there were a couple that he held back up. We knew he did. And for some reason, serial killers, I don't know why, but they'll hold back certain cases. I don't know. I don't, or they won't admit to him. Or no, I wouldn't do that. That's strange. It is strange. Yeah, that's weird. But yeah, he admitted pretty much to all of them. It's almost like they would take pride in their work. Why hold back, right? I mean... They did, and we interviewed uh, quite a few serial killers while they were in jail. And, you know, they talk about murdering people like you and I would talk about where we're going to have lunch next week. I mean, they don't... They're complete sociopaths. It's all about their own personal satisfaction, and it's... They're scary people, because they have no feelings for anything or anybody. Was there any particular case, uh, aside from the Wonderland murders, that had a really monumental, lasting effect on you? Yeah, I would say the Dorothy May fire was, uh, was devastating. Um, a young boy, well, he was about 17, he lit a fire at the Dorothy May Hotel, and 20, 27 people, I believe it was, mostly women and children, died in the fire. Jeez. And most of them were from his hometown in Mexico, and they were almost all... Uh, uh, Hispanic uh, refugees, basically. And he was pissed off at his uncle. He threw a gallon of gas on, a, on his uh, welcome mat in front of his apartment. It caught, and the whole place went up. And there was some irony to that case because 
Years ago, there was a Pone fire, which was similar. And the Pone doors that they put on all the hotels would hold fire back for a certain amount of time. This hotel had those Pone doors. If all these people would have stayed in their rooms, they'd have all survived. Oh, but man. they ran out into the hallway in a panic, and the backfire and the flash just burned them mid-stride. I mean, just incinerated. Oh, jeez. It was really sad. I had to stand all the autopsies uh, at the coroner's office. They're all the bodies were lined up, and uh, the kid did ran ran to Mexico, and we sent some uh, Spanish-speaking officers down there to pick him up, and then the Mexican authorities wouldn't release him because they don't. If it's a capital case, uh, they won't cooperate. So. Our guy is just pretty much threw him the trunk of a car and brought him back. <laughs> but, uh, he's, I think he got sentenced to 500 and some years in prison or something. But, but that one stuck with me just because we had one detective went off with a, uh, he actually had a nervous breakdown because of dealing with the victim's families. Yeah. He was at the coroner's <clears throat> office with me and he just couldn't really handle it. It was a rough one when you see these women and kids, especially. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was memorable. It was. I've always wow. wondered who names these cases, like the Zodiac Killer? Is it the press? Is it the police? Like, who names the cases? Uh, sometimes it's a combination of people. Quite often it's the press. They're, they're the ones who came up with four on the floor for the yeah. Wonder, for the Wonderland right. murders. Right. And sometimes there were just people we knew in a restaurant. They'd hear about the case and say, oh, yeah, that ought to be the bum and the drum. That's what you ought to call that case. So, yeah, that's quite often it was the press or friends or wasn't so much the detectives all the time. So let's go to 1981 and the Wonderland murders and, and this amazing book, Malice in Wonderland, only published a, a few short years ago with your former partner. Yeah, yeah. Why did you feel like now was the time to go back and revisit and tell your story? From the beginning, uh, the press, they capitalized on John Holmes, the porno star. Right. Who had the 14 inch penis. <laughs> and right. so that was... The most interesting thing as far as the press was, and that's what they capitalized on. But we knew an awful lot more. There was so much graft and corruption in that case that, that we had never experienced before. They never got into that. And uh, I remember one of the, uh, I think somebody wrote an article for Playboy magazine. They said, if it wasn't for his 14-inch crank, he couldn't get a job as a forklift operator. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought that was an insult to the forklift driver. <laughs> right, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, they did the movie Wonderland. Uh, they yeah. sent the script to Tom and I. We read it. And we looked at each other and said, no, we don't want any part of this. And they used our names in the script. So they had to take our names out of it. And we didn't we didn't like the script. And they didn't want to rewrite or listen to us. So we just kind of backed off of it. But I think we got tired of all the TV coverage and everything. And there were a lot of uh, talking heads and people that had researched it on the Internet. Tom and I worked the case. And half the time we didn't recognize what they were talking wow. about. Wow. So we did, so he called, Tom called me one night and said, hey, Bob, I'm thinking about writing that book, Let's Write Wonderland. I said, that's a good idea. We'll tell the real story. And we got into the graft and corruption, and uh, we'd never seen it before. We had a crooked uh, F, uh, federal agent. We had a crooked judge, uh, Ed Nash, the local gangster, who we knew had uh, masterminded the murders. He had bought people off. That's what he did. He bought off cops. He bought off... Um, I think the most interesting thing was we found out that he was involved in some arson cases, arson for uh, for profit. And his attorney was a fellow named Dominic Rubalcava. Dominic Rubalcava was the president of the Fire Commission, and he was defending Ed Nash on arson cases. Wow. Oh, so we brought it to the attention of our captain, and he said, you're kidding me. I said, no. And I said, I, I think it's 
conflict of interest. So they took it all the way up to Tom Bradley, the mayor at the time, and the chief. And all we ever heard back was, they've looked into it and there is no conflict of interest. And we said, wait a minute, on its surface, there's a conflict of interest. Right. He's a president of the fire commission. So that was just a small part of it. And Nash paid off a judge. He was supplying him with cocaine. Bought off a juror for $50,000. In court, in front of his attorneys, he offered Tom and I half a million dollars to help, wow. help him get out of the narco- out of the, do- <clears throat> the dope cases. That's a lot of money back then. Yeah, right? was a lot of money. <laughs> quarter of a million apiece. I could have done a lot with it. How does that guy go from selling hot dogs on the corner of you know, Hollywood and whatever to the drugs? Biggest, <laughs> I mean, he's the biggest kingpin in L.A. He was. He was probably one of the biggest suppliers of dope, too. He was amazing. He had several nightclubs. And I knew him when, uh, be, after he had the hot dog stand, he also had the Seven Seas and some other places. And we used to go there once where they had belly dancers and you could take your wife for a nice evening, you know, with a show, floor show and everything. These are classy, classy clubs, some of them, right? <clears throat> yeah. The uh, Seven Seas was a very nice place. And he just he got very rich. And then, of course, then he had the narcotics on the side, which made him a lot of money. Wow. And he got locked in with some really bad guys who were uh, hitmen and... And, of course, there was his house, and then there was the Wonderland house. And John Holmes was back and forth. He was like the catalyst. And he'd steal, and he'd fence off stuff at both places. And the Wonderland house, they were they robbed dope dealers. That was their that was their, their pursuit. And, and you know they're pretty bad people when they rob other drug dealers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah that's small. You know they're badasses. Yeah. <laughs> so they, uh, Holmes told them about Ed Nash, and he always had coke in his safe and a lot of money. And so... Bunch of them went over and they robbed Ed Nash, and Nash pretty much figured it was Holmes that uh, laid him out. And Nash said, "I want everybody in that house killed." And he sent his henchmen over, and they they beat uh, well five of them almost to death. One of them survived, and the only reason the one survived was because she was beaten so severely with a metal pipe that it collapsed a lot of her skull and kept some of the blood in her body. She still probably lost four to five pints of blood, but. Enough of it stayed in because everything was crushed down. So she actually survived. And the neurosurgeon told me that her skull looked like if you took an egg and dropped it off of a, of, of a roof, that's what her skull looked like. <laughs> and I stayed with her. That was part of my, my job. I spent a lot of time with her, hoping she would be able to recover enough to identify somebody at some point in time. And she got pretty close. But then again, all these people were loaded on heroin when they were killed. They were included, and uh, it was dark. But she got to where she said she saw a metallic uh, object of some kind and big couple big guys. That's all she could bring, bring back. But uh, we knew who did it within about 36 hours. And it took us almost 20 years to get Ed Nash. They finally got him on RICO charges. <laughs> and they used, yeah, on, for RICO, you need uh, three major felonies. And one was our, our murder case, the arson cases, and then one other case he had. So... The feds finally got him, and uh, I think he only did about three years. He just died, just died about three or four years ago. So it was all this, all this corruption and everything else that led to them, <laughs> you know, being acquitted. I guess right. Over yeah, and over that again was for... all part of it. I mean, uh, he, he even got out of prison early. <clears throat> wow! Because he said he had some kind of a nasal issue, and he bought off the judge. The judge let him out of prison early. What? <laughs> Whoa! But that's what he did. He had he had plenty of money. Um, we raided his house three times and every time he had over a hundred thousand dollars in a safe with drugs and guns and everything else that comes with it so yeah he was a very wealthy guy now what about the implication of of john holmes in this as far as 
there was a, a handprint yeah. above yeah. the headboard of one of the victims that almost, you know, maybe would give you the idea that he was bracing himself. Yeah, it, while, exactly. It was very uh, telling the fact sure. that if you were going to hit somebody with a pipe, you'd brace yourself and, and raise your arm to hit him. So we were pretty sure Holmes was involved, but he'd never admit to it. He was afraid of Nash. He pretty much knew Nash had planned to have him killed. Uh, and then Holmes died of AIDS, so that took care of that. But, yeah, we always knew Holmes was involved. We booked him for murder, but he was acquitted. Uh, again, we don't know, but maybe a jury bought off in that case, too. We, we can never prove it. Jeez. He, he comes across as such a buffoon character. He was. He played that Johnny Wad character in the porno movie. Yeah, and, but, but it's like, you know, he, he would rip off anybody. You know, he's making all yeah. this money back then, but it's like, I'll still rip off, you know, your, your wallet or your, your wristwatch or whatever. You know, it's like, why? You know, it's like. <laughs> he, he was such a lightweight. He'd steal luggage off the sidewalk at LAX. <laughs> That's the kind of guy he was. You Jeez. Know? He'd go to somebody's house and he'd steal shit out of their cabinets. And, you know, he was just a real sleaze. I mean, you know, we, we, when I read those details, it's, it kind of seems like he doesn't fit, you know, the person that would bludgeon somebody to death unless he was on something. Well. There's a story behind that. Ron Lanius was uh, in the bed where we found his handprint. Mm -hmm. Ron Lanius was a really uh, dangerous guy. He was a hit man, and uh, he used to pick on Holmes. He used, oh. he used to make him pull out his uh, his stuff and show it to women, and he just treated him like a, like a clown. And Holmes was afraid of him, but he also hated him. And so we kind of felt that was probably his motivation. Plus, the guys that he went with, they, they wanted Holmes to participate so they'd have some protection. Okay, you're a murderer too, so you're not going to be able to uh, testify against us because you're just as dirty as we are. So I think I, we feel that's probably what happened. So Holmes's handprint was there, yeah, in blood, and he still got off. Well, no, he was charged and went to trial. He beat it at, in trial it, because had someone attorneys. paid. Ed Nash paid for his attorneys. Uh, well, OJ got off too. I know. <laughs> so does Casey Anthony. Like that case, oh man, don't get me started on Casey Anthony. <laughs> I know, I know. So on the, on the day that you got the call about the murders, you were sort of on a 4th of July uh, pre-vacation there. Yeah, right? we're, in a holiday mode. we're in a holiday mode. <laughs> Tom and I never really worked together. We knew each other, but um, we were, a lot of this is in the book too. We talk a lot about our personal right. uh, part. And I told Tom when we were leaving the police building, we were both going down to the, the basement to get our cars i said you know tom with our luck we're gonna end up with a triple murder in hollywood hills this weekend <laughs> so not only do we get a triple we got a quadruple quadruple yeah. wow yeah. you you went um, <clears throat> to to the crime scene obviously and another interesting footnote about this is it's one of the first times that or maybe the first time that video of the crime scene was used in in court yeah, it was the first time they'd ever we'd ever videotaped a crime scene, and it was Tom's idea. He took, came to me and he says, "Hey, you know, we have a uh, they have video equipment in our uh, crime lab truck. Why don't we videotape it?" I said, "Good idea. Let's do it." It was very cumbersome at that time. Now you could do it on a cell phone, sure. But at that time, it was involved a big awkward camera and cords, and uh, but Tom did the whole walkthrough while I handled all the uh, uh, the outside stuff and. They've, you've seen it. It's on the internet now. I think you can pull it up and find it. Yeah. His walkthrough. But it was uh, it was the bloodiest crime scene I'd ever seen. Oh, it was insane. Yeah. In fact, Tom, before we walked in, he said, hey, get your galoshes ready. He says, this is a mess in here. And it was, as I think somebody described it. They said it was like somebody took buckets of blood and just sloshed them on the wall. Jeez. I'd never seen quite so much blood at a crime scene. Wow. And it was because they had beaten these people uh, 
and there was blood splatter and there was blood drainage and it was it was everywhere well some of their heads were so i mean almost flat right yeah exactly being there and and dealing with these images how do you cope with that afterwards that is that something that you relive is there a trauma there that it wasn't our first rodeo yeah um we'd seen plenty of carnage back tom was in vietnam so i mean this wasn't right i was in the military myself but um it's kind of like I always equate it to a, to a doctor, you know, or somebody. If you're in that line of work, you learn how to contain yourself. How to? Sure. I, mean, I, I always told people, I said, well, "How would you feel if I came to a crime scene and somebody in your family was was murdered?" And I went, "Oh my God, what are we gonna do?" Yeah, you know, you don't want that guy. You know, you want somebody you can think on their feet. And so we we pretty much got used to that. We were we try to be as professional as possible, but to distance yourself. And, and basically, we're always told the same thing. You know, you, you want to put yourself in the victim's shoes and find out who did it. Right. And that's what you focus on. Upon entering the residence, what were your first thoughts when you started to see the actual bodies? I mean... Uh, Tom had already walked through. Oh, so uh, you, you were yeah, pre-warned. I, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. But he didn't... But Tom, Tom's funny because he, he wanted me to be somewhat surprised at certain things. And he, as we walked, I mean, I'm... I'm and, and you're all, all your attention is your notes are going on in your head already because, you know, later on you'll have to testify in court and you don't want to uh, forget anything. So right. as we walked through, he would just point out some things that he'd already seen. But um, I, I was uh, surprised at, the, uh, at how savage it was. We, we talked about it and we said, this is a get-back murder. This is revenge. People don't just come in and kill somebody and do this to them. They just kept beating him and beating after they're dead, right they're beating him. So that was the part that really <clears throat> struck us. This is, this is a get back murder. Somebody was pissed off at these people. And then it was, this was exactly what it was. Yeah. So you're, you're finding blood splatter patterns and brain matter, skull matter on the ceiling, on the walls. Yeah. And we became blood experts because you could tell the difference between when blood is being splattered up. You can tell by the tail of the, of the drops. Oh, whether the, the direction. And we said they're both directions. So, you know, they're swinging and coming down and back and forth. And, and did that tell you that it was a, a large, you know, something like a baseball bat or an axe or something? Or We, we kind of determined almost immediately that it was probably some kind of a, a pipe because the wall, in the wall, we had some indentations that were like thread marks. Oh. Like you see on galvanized pipe. Right. And as we found out much later, uh, it was a whole sprinkler system was taken apart and that's where they'd gotten the pipe from. Oh, shit. Like three quarter inch galvanized pipe, which is pretty heavy. Yeah, and one of Nash's henchmen, he used to carry a a piece of that pipe in his car, and he had like a bicycle grip on one end of it, which makes a pretty lethal weapon. And so we figured that's that's pretty much what it was. Wow. So the book becomes a very revealing look at the process of investigation and detective work as you guys descend down this rabbit hole and uh, meet all these oddball characters and start revealing what happened including the singer of the band three dog night three dog. Yeah. makes an appearance which chuck, is chuck negrone yeah uh, chuck negrone we we knew that he and his wife were scoring a lot of drugs at wonderland so they were just another another couple to talk to yeah well, we went to their house and uh, his uh, his wife answers the door and she invites us in and she's in her robe and he's in uh he had like pajama bottoms on or something and so we walk in and as we come through the door 
Chuck turns around and puts his hand behind his hands behind his back, like index handcuffing position. Yeah. Well, I said, "Hey, Chuck, you're not going anywhere. We just want to talk to you." What'd you do, Chuck? Poor guy. So he'd been in enough trouble, you know. But he told me that he and his wife had gone through like three million dollars in cocaine in the last year or two. And, oh, jeez. Uh, well, you know how successful that group was. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, and at the time, three million dollars must have been was a ton like of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A ship yeah. pile now. <laughs> yeah. And that was all heroin and coke and um they didn't know a lot but they gave us a lot of background on the player on the on the victims who lived in the house and he was pretty close to uh, joy miller who was one of the gals who was killed and uh we became friends after that chuck cleaned up uh he was clean and sober for years i hope he still is but i think he's still entertaining as far as i've heard but uh really really nice man i felt bad because he was such a nice guy and to be involved with drugs like he was and he admitted it. He said, "Hey, I'm you know, I'm a strung out hype man, you know." And uh, but, but I'll never forget him turning around and yeah, it, exactly. Tom <laughs> and I laugh. We still laugh about it. <laughs> Back with more of our conversation with Robert Souza in just a moment. This is the Boo Crew Podcast. It doesn't seem so threatening when you break it down like that. This is evil. Some of the other interesting things about the process in general are things like the no-knock warrant that you guys discuss or canoe makers and all these different <laughs> terms and things that are just fascinating. Uh, one thing in particular that struck me was the questioning of John Holmes by a fellow officer. And there was a part that talks about that a Bible was present in the room. Questioning came up during prayer. And you guys were very concerned about that. And I was yeah. wondering, I'd, I'd never heard about, you know, why that would be a concern. One of the detectives that worked with us, uh, Frank Thomas, and he was a born-again Christian. We call him the parson. And John was very much into uh, into religion. And uh, he would pray with uh, with people. And he was a very compassionate guy, basically. But he was having some success. Holmes kind of liked him because he and Tom had arrested Holmes in Florida. And they talked a lot on the way back. And so... Frank asked him, he says, would you like me to pray with you? Because you're in a lot of trouble. And so Holmes did actually pray with him. The problem with it is Frank's not a priest. And so there is no privileged communication between <laughs> him and Holmes. And he wasn't advised of his rights. So we were worried about it in court becoming an issue. Gotcha. And it did become somewhat of an issue. because, But Holmes never did admit to the murders. Mm -hmm. But he did admit to letting him in and, uh, and being involved as far as that was concerned. But yeah, we're, we were very concerned about it. And it wasn't our choice to have him pray with John Holmes. But uh, right after that, I ended up booking Holmes for murder in the jail at Parker Center. And that itself was a story. I mean, well, by the time I got down to the felony section, every prisoner in there knew Holmes was coming. They're standing on each other's shoulders. They're waiting for the body search. Oh, so they can see. <laughs> wow. Everybody, wow. Wants to, everybody wants to get a look. <laughs> and so... Uh, I did the skin search, and even uh, some DJ in L.A. said, yeah, the detective searched John Holmes. It took him three and a half hours to do the skin search. So, <laughs> so there are all these jokes going on. And I, when I got back to the squad room, and several detectives were in there, and I said, hey, Bob, is it real? Is it really for real? I said, let's put it this way. All men are not created equal. <laughs> I, said, I said, but he was a little nervous, so it was shriveled up to about a lazy nine. <laughs> so, oh, man. So, so there was some humor at times. You know, right. 
Uh, what is the difference between police work done in the 70s versus police work done now? Oh, boy. We actually had support. <laughs> yeah. We didn't have to worry about our own brass uh, trying to get us in trouble. We mm. That case itself was a little different because all of a sudden we're being told what we could do, what we couldn't do. But normally we had total autonomy. I don't, nobody really wanted to mess with homicide detectives, especially the brass. Because we actually had the power, if they were there and they want to get involved and tell us how to do something, say, sir, are you taking over this case? And no brass in the right mind wants to take over a murder case. So, so like I say, uh, this, this was new to us. And uh, we were told not to talk to Ed Nash to begin with. That was coming all the way from the top. And that surprised us. So Tom and I didn't listen to that too much. We hadn't, uh, they had, narcotics had buys into his house. So we said, okay, we can't get him for murder. We'll put him in jail for dope, you know. Um, but different, the, the technology now with DNA, they have some things that we didn't have. We, I think our, our approach was much more personal dealing with other departments, other detectives. Now everything's done by text and everybody sits on their computer and it's all over line. It's online, which, right. which I hate to see beyond, be honest with you. But I think we were just more personal. We were more down in the trenches, I think, than they are now. And I think even LAPD, because of overtime being such a factor, that if detectives get to a point where they're going to go into overtime, they bring in a new team. Oh, jeez. And I can't even imagine that when you're in the middle of a case being pulled off. Sure, yeah. And so that, to me, jeopardizes a case. <clears throat> but um, it's different now. And they only have, what's LA had 200 and some murders for the year. We had 1,000. Crazy. So yeah, it, it's it, it's much different now. Yeah, and a lot of the more interesting details when you read the book too are conversations that you had off the off the clock, so to speak, right at the bar afterwards yeah, or at a restaurant. We, you guys are talking things through, and we call it, we debriefed and we uh, we called command post. Right, we'd meet and have a few drinks and talk about what our plan was and what do you want to do the next day. Um, we would even sit with guys handling other serial killer cases and try to get some ideas. Uh, what they were doing, and you know, somebody said, you know, I just uh, checked all everybody who was released from prison at that particular that during that particular time time, time period. Yeah, we're going to do that too. That's a good idea. Um, I actually served a search warrant on a Tascadero State Hospital for every inmate that was came in after a certain date, thinking because we had la lapses in in between killings. So why didn't anything happen for three months? Well, maybe they went to jail. Maybe they were sentenced to uh, state hospital. And so we would check everybody that was in that category. So those kinds of things, I'm sure they still do that, but now it's all computerized. But um, yeah, it was, we, we operated much differently. And, and I think we had more support. You know, I, I served a search warrant on a Tascadero hospital, and they wouldn't accept it because it was signed by a judge in Los Angeles, and that was San Luis Obispo County. So I went to a San Luis Obispo judge and gave him the same affidavit and on the third page, I had pictures of the victims in, in the crime scene. And the judge is going through it, and he says, do you think the son of a bitch that did this is in a Tascadero? I said, yes, I do, Your Honor. And he said, let's go get that bastard. Nice. You'd never get that now. Yeah. Wow. You'd never have that kind of cooperation. Let's talk a bit about uh, something that comes up a few times on this show. And I was wondering if maybe you had any experience with it being in that downtown LA area, but there was a place called the Cecil Hotel. Yeah, I know the Cecil. Yeah, you know, and it was Fifth Street, I think, or somewhere in that area, isn't it? 
Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. down yeah. On, down on Maine, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that place has a, a sordid history of um, going back to the '40s with uh, the Black Dahlia. Apparently, Richard Ramirez had stayed there in the '80s, and a guy named Jack Untrewiger uh, stayed there in '91. Recently, a weird case happened in 2013 where a missing uh, Canadian student was found in the in the water tower up there. But I was just wondering if you had ever, you know, been around uh, the Cecil Hotel or any of your investigations that ever had you cross paths with that place? We we were quite awful. We were in that area. And it's a, now it's a big homeless area. But even then, they called it the Nickel years ago. I think in the 40s it was called the Nickel. Oh. And we had a couple. The El Rey Hotel was another one that uh, averaged 20-some robberies a, a week. Wow. <laughs> Just Jeez. in that hotel. Wow. A lot of ex-cons um, in that area. The Cecil Hotel, I don't remember anything specifically, but... Yeah, we used to deal with that area, and a lot of ex-cons were, and there were halfway houses down there, and so bad guys would show up there. I mean, so we quite often we'd be in there looking for somebody. Were there any cases that that defied explanation or anything you you looked at that might have even, you know, dare I say, a paranormal quotient enter the picture? <laughs> well, <laughs> I was hoping you'd bring this up because I know what Boo Crew is. <laughs> um, we were, for some reason, my partner and I years ago, we were selected to test psychics and they would come to public affairs and through the chief's office. And when you have a major case, you have to exhaust all avenues. And if we had a psychic that thought they could help solve a case, well, you have to at least give it a shot. Yeah. It may be bullshit, but I mean, you still have to give it a shot. So we would be selected to test them and we would, uh, they, we'd meet them. We'd give them article clothing or something from a victim and they would do their thing. And some would want to go out in the car and say, I think I think I can help you. And we drive around and cater to them, basically. And uh, we personally never came up with anything specifically. We found out a couple of them were writing a book and another one just wanted to ride around with cops. You know? <laughs> um, right. But our lieutenant, he told us a story about when he was a young detective. And this this lieutenant had worked thousands of murder cases. And he was, he was, he was an old salt. He'd been around. And he said he and his partner had talked to a psychic, and in the, I think probably the mid fifties, maybe. And the psychic told them he she was a lady, and she had felt victims' clothing, and she took them to a remote area out in the valley, and said, "I have a really strong feeling about this." And she told him that uh, I'm seeing a house. It's like a green house. I'm seeing a like it's on the corner, and there's a blue car in the driveway. And she had all these things she was talking about, about six, seven different points. And they didn't think a lot about it. They made notes. And when they finally got the guy, oh, there was another part to this. The remote area she took them to, they walked down into this kind of a foresty area. And she flopped on the ground. And they went, what the hell's going on? And she left like a left epileptic seizure. And she's on the ground kind of fidgeting. And so they helped her up and they got her back in the car. So to make a long story short, they had... Several weeks had gone by. They solved the case and they caught the guy. They caught the suspect. Not only did he live in that color house on a corner, but he had a blue car. And he took them to where the body was buried in a grave. And it was when a, within about six feet in a shallow grave where she had fallen on the ground and rolled around. No. What? what? And he told us, he said, it gave me the chills. Yeah, yeah. my skin's oh, crawling man. right now. But he told us, he said, I can't explain it. He said, and I'm an old salt and I don't believe in that shit. He said, but there you have it, guys. So have at it with these psychics. Keep an open mind. 
because you just don't know. But I always thought, especially coming from him. Yeah. So I was never, she I never hired? Thought he would never bullshit us, let's put it that way. Right, sure. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was she hired for different cases since there was some uh, legitimate? That, I don't know. See. We did use Peter Herkos, so I don't know if you've ever heard of Peter Herkos. He's a well-known psychic. We used him on the Hillside uh, Strangler case. Oh, the Bianchi brothers? Or, uh, yeah, Bianchi and Bono. That's right. They were cousins. The cousins, that's right. Yeah. But uh, he, he couldn't really help. But he was well known. He had done some other things. But I don't, we, I just, we didn't have any luck with him. But we at least gave it a shot because you're going to be criticized, especially if they do something like this. If, if we never, if they never used this gal and she had all this information. Yeah. You'd really be criticized for that. Oh, for yeah. sure. For sure. You're damned wow. if you do and damned if you don't on that one. <laughs> right. So what was your relationship like to this, uh, the Wonderland case as the years went on? Did it become kind of an obsession for you guys? Just to come on, let's just get yeah. this thing wrapped up. We know what happened. What's going on? We were constantly getting clues from yeah. other people. And the more time that went by, people's loose lists, their lips loosened up a little bit. Yeah. We kept getting additional information. And... uh I mean, to where I was, we were running people constantly through prints, see if we could uh, make somebody. I retired, and Tom continued on with another partner, and they still got more information, and we kept, it just kept going and going and going. They arrested Nash again, and they arrested uh, a couple other people, and Dials, his main henchman, and it went on for 20 years, basically, until Nash was finally, and the only reason nobody ever heard about Nash being convicted was, or going to jail. Because uh, you've you've heard of nine eleven on nine twelve Nash was in the paper about this big <laughs> a small on page thirty seven in the L A Times oh, so I just got got buried yeah yeah unbelievable but we call it our twenty year case it just went it did go on and on and uh, they finally Tom in fact Tom interviewed uh, Holmes just before he died he was in a veterans hospital and uh, he still he told uh, Tom called me that day and he said I just talked to Holmes. He said he's going to write everything out for us and uh, give it to his wife because he's dying. And I said, oh, that ought to be interesting. Never did it. He was a bullshit. <laughs> right to the very All end. All the way to the end. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it seemed like he was just more afraid of Nash than he was of the LAPD or any consequences oh, so. whatsoever. Well, Nash told him he'd kill his whole family. Oh, yeah. And I think he would. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure he believed every story about the bodies in the desert. And, oh, you know, yeah. You can, you can bet on it. And geez. Nash was a dangerous guy. There's no question. Wow. There's one part in the book that just creeped me right. It grossed me out where you're responsible for is traveling with Susan, the the one who survived. Yeah. And you guys are on an airplane and she had to wear a helmet because of her skull injury. Yeah, like half her skull was removed. Yeah. She had well, more than half. More than uh, half. <sighs> and she had, didn't even have the plate yet. So it was just a flap of skin between her brain and the top. And. No. The, the neurosurgeon, when we were, I, was, I was taking, escorting her home, the neurosurgeon said, she'll have to wear a helmet if you're going to score. I said, okay. So we did. And we got on the plane, and the helmet was uncomfortable for her. And so I let her have, I told her to have a drink, and we, we were on the plane, and she says, can I please just take my helmet off while we're on? I said, okay, while well, we're on the plane, but if you get up, you have to put it back on. I said, I can't, can't take that risk. So she took the helmet off, and there's flight attendants, we called stewardesses then, and there's a flight attendant standing right there when she takes her helmet off. And Susan, a young gal, pretty gal, and she she starts fingering the top of her head. No, no. Uh, and she would say, "Oh, that's that that tastes like chocolate." 
Oh, that's the sexy button right there. Oh, wow. And it reminded me of that book, uh, uh, The Terminal Man by Michael Crichton. Yes, yes. Where they had those electrodes in his brain. Right. Yeah. Uh, it creeped everybody out. And, and, and <laughs> still, I'll never forget the flight attendant because she's her eyes are this big around uh, and she goes, <gasps> and she just ran to the back of the plane. Oh, my oh, gosh. It, it was creepy. It Whoa. Was, oh, was she Was she messing with everybody or do you think she was no, legit I, like? I think there was part of that was really. That's insane. Oh. In terms of the the weapons that were used, the pipes that were used, you know, to, to beat these four victims, five, um, were there any cases, subsequent cases, cases or, or before that, that there might have been like a connection, like in terms of maybe it might have been some kind of mob hit somewhere or something where some guy's like, hey, the style of murder over here matches kind of this one with the same, you know, or is that just too generic of a weapon to use? No, actually, where, Greg Diles, who was one of the primary suspects and Nash's main bodyguard, he had been arrested a couple of times. He was a bodyguard in Nash's nightclubs, and he had been arrested a couple of times with a pipe with a, with a bicycle grip on it. Right, yeah, right, that you were right. saying that it was It was found. his weapon of choice. Jeez. So it had been used before, and that was one of the things that we were reasonably certain that they all had a piece of pipe because it was there were pipe threads everywhere. Was along the same lines of being creepy, the pathologist that did the autopsy on the four victims who were, were dead he wanted to examine Susie, who was still alive. And he said, can you set that up for me with uh, Dr. Saunders, the neurosurgeon? I said, sure. So Miles Saunders, who was a noted neurosurgeon, I told him that the pathologist wanted to examine her to compare her wounds to the people who died. He said, I'll be there, but it's okay. I, I let him come in, but I want to be there. And well, of course. So the pathologist comes in and Miles Saunders has him in his office, and he's showing him uh, x-rays, and and the pathologist says, well, I'd like to see her. The neurosurgeon was trying to get out of letting him see her in alive, because if you have a doctor and you have a pathologist, they're whole different people. He deals with dead people. Right. Miles Saunders deals with people who are alive. So anyway, finally, let the pathologist come in to examine her, and it was almost comical, because he keeps getting between her and his patient. And he keeps getting between the pathologist, and every time he got a little close, he'd put his hand out and keep keeping him away. He was afraid she would he would touch her or you know getting. So it was kind of clever to watch. I mean, it was he was very protective of her, and I can understand why. I mean, he saved her life. You know, yeah. he was an amazing man. So, but I always thought that was interesting, and I've seen the difference between an autopsy in a hospital and an autopsy at the coroner's office. There's no comparison between the canoe makers and the professional clinical autopsy. Did she, I know this is random, but did she ever complain about not having taste or smell? Because I know it's like when there's brain injury, sometimes that's lost. I I don't think so because okay. she was on a pretty much a normal diet within two or three weeks after the uh, oh. the injuries. And on the plane, she had a couple drinks and she could taste them. Wow. Is she still alive today? As far as I know. Wow. Wow. As far as I know, she's leading a normal life, and I heard she married a doctor. Wow. That's amazing. And I was glad to hear that. Yeah. Because she was involved with a really bad group, and if she cleaned up her act and had a straight life, I'd be happy for her. Right. You know, and right. she was, what, 21? She was young, young, right? Yeah, she was 21, 22 years old. Yeah, jeez. Yeah. And the house is still there, right? The Wonderland house oh, yeah. is still there. Yeah. What is it that you think people are so 
into serial killers. It seems like right now they're super popular. There's always been a fascination, but now we have people collecting serial killer art or writing serial killers or getting toenails, like just really creepy shit. Like, What is it, do you think, that fascinates these people like to the point where they want artwork and communication with people that kill uh you know it's kind of a macabre pastime i mean i we had that situation with the sunset slayer was one where uh, they were actually writing to them in jail i don't know if people are just fascinated some people just want to write a book right and they want to get close to them but uh bianchi had a whole fan club i mean he murdered and his, his murders were brutal I don't know what motivates somebody to do that. Of course, I've always had an interest because it was something I did for a living. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always felt like, gee, maybe I can help these guys, you know, if they're, if they're, serial killers now are pretty rare. It happens. And even at that time, we might have, I think over that period of time, maybe 10 or 15 serial killers. And you always had Gacy in Chicago and you had Bundy was a prolific killer. And so they always have, but for some reason in California, and it's, California was a cornucopia of, they call it the victim pool. You know, it was a, a time with free love and cocaine salad days. And it was just a, it was a different era. And it's never happened since. So I, I don't, but there is a fascination with it. Even today, people, well, Manson had a following and up to the time he died. I mean. Strong. He's a creepy dude. You know, yeah. I don't know. You know That's a good of, question. Speaking yeah. of the Manson uh, murders, you know. There was one particular detail about that case, the Cielo Drive murders, that really bothered me is that we always talk about the first person that was killed outside the gate. Right. was a gunshot. Yeah. How come nobody heard of that gunshot? I don't know. That's, that's strange because nowadays, quite often they think it's a backfire or fireworks or... Right. Uh, but it is strange. And I, the one thing about the, the Tate murders that always uh, amazed me was that they all succumbed. And we used to give lectures to, uh, to groups, especially women's groups. You never succumb. You fight to the end because they're going to kill you anyway. So you might as well fight. Don't ever give in. Don't ever let them handcuff you or tie you up because they're probably going to kill you. So we always, and if everybody in that house would have fought, they would, not all of them would have died. They would probably run off and some of them would have, but they all just kind of succumbed to these. And one of the, two of the uh, suspects had knives. You, know, you can outrun somebody with a knife. Yeah. Yep. So that was always kind of puzzling. I think it was just sheer terror that they caught him off guard. Tarantino's movie, by the way, have you seen it? Yes. 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 Yeah, I, w- I was nervous. I didn't want him to reenact the, the actual Tate murders. I was hoping Tarantino wouldn't do that, and he didn't. He just fictionalized it, and it was it was great the way he did it. Yeah, yeah. It took us yeah. on a whole new. But I thought, yeah. oh, I, I I said I can't watch it if they're going to reenact that; it'd be horrible. Yeah, so that's, that's hard I'm, I'm glad he did it the way he did it, which I thought. I think the movie's phenomenal. Yeah. No, it's great. It's a great movie. You heard about The Joker. Yes. Yeah. The highest grossing R-rated film in the history. Yeah. Is that amazing? Yeah. Did you see it? Yeah. Yeah. What'd you think of it? I liked it. I think his performance was amazing. Did you like it? Yeah, Yeah. I did. I did. Do you think it's an accurate depiction of what can make a person into a killer? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I believe that character... And I loved it because it does set up the whole. I've been reading Batman comics since I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I thought the as a prequel to not do it cartoonish. Yes, I thought it was really smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, it was. I thought it was really good. And you meet, you see Bruce Wayne as a kid. Right. That's yeah. yeah that's yeah. really cool how they cool, did that. Some cool stuff. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, how did you make that transition into 
all this years of police work into the Hollywood writing industry. You know, you're writing films, consulting scripts and things. How did that happen? I've, I've always played with writing since I was young. I went to night school. I studied creative writing. And I think it started when uh, Joe Wamba uh, was popular. And he was the first real cop writer. And he wrote The New Centurions was his first book, like in the late 60s. And I read it, and I was going to night classes taking uh, creative writing. I said, wait a minute. This book is the most basic style. You pick a character, and you do each character, a chapter here, a chapter. And then on the next chapter, you see them all together. And then you go, in, and I said, God, I could do this. So I took all, I t- all the classes he, he took, and I had the same creative writing teacher. John Weston was a professor at uh, U.S. at uh, Cal State L.A. And I talked to Joe, and he, he helped me. I mean, he told me to give me some ideas. But his character development and everything was so good. But the thing about, about Joe, Joe was writing sea stories. He didn't live it. I actually lived it. And so I said, I said I'm the one who should be writing this. Story. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But I can't take a thing away from Joe. He's a, he's a tremendous writer. So that really got me started. And then uh, later, much later on, I met uh, William Shatner, and uh, he was doing that uh, TV show, uh, T.J. Hooker, years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I met him through a friend, and uh, he said, why don't you uh, write for the show? I said, I'd like to do that. And he says, I'm going to give you some sample scripts. And I'd really never even seen a script. I'll give you some sample scripts. Take them. I want you to write, write me a script. Let me see how you do. Said, all right. So I took 10 days off work. I read all the scripts he gave me. And I said, I could do this. I wrote a script, took it out, put it in his mailbox. I was called out on a murder case that weekend. And my wife answers the phone Sunday morning. He says, oh, hi, uh, this is Bill Shatner. Uh, is, is, is Bob home? My wife wow. says, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> and she was blown away. And she's, she's like this, telling my kids, I got William Shatner's on the phone. With so cool. <laughs> right. So they liked the script. They bought it. And I was going to be the tech advisor on that show. And so the first day, I'm on, a, I'm on the set. And he's got a piece of evidence. He's asking me how he should wrap it. And I said, so I'm just starting to get into it. And my beeper goes off. We didn't have cell phones. I, my pager went off. And I said, hey, Bill, I got to go. I said, I got to, I got to, got to get the homicide call out. <laughs> he says, you can't go. I said, Bill, I got to go. Yeah, the real stuff's uh, happening right yeah. now. Yeah. And, and he just kind of looked at me as I'm walking away. And uh, so needless to say, it was my first and last day on the set. But, uh, and, but I continued on. And I worked on Police Story and a few others as a tech advisor. And, and then I met Ron Shelton, the sports writer that wrote uh, White Man Can't Jump, mm-hmm. and Bull Durham, yeah, nominated for Academy Award for yeah. Bull Durham. And he and I really hit it off, and he wanted to do a cop movie. And so we did Dark Blue with Kurt Russell, and he and I pretty much rewrote it. And uh, he said, we're not going to get credit for this one, because there's been too many writers involved. Said, but the next one we will. And I said, okay. So I was with him every day, and he said, I'm going to give you a film school education. I said, great. I learned a hell of a lot in that movie, and then... We talked a lot about different movies and, and ideas, and we came up with Hollywood Homicide. And he says, God, I love that. And so he and I wrote it. And it was the first time Harrison Ford ever committed to a script without having a script. He committed to the show. Oh, wow. He loved the concept. And uh, we didn't know at first, but Joe Roth, who was a producer, we had pitched it. Three studios liked it, and they wanted to do it, but they weren't getting back to us. And so Ron finally got pissed off, and he said, yeah, I don't need this. I'm going to see my buddy Joe Roth. He'll probably do it. And we talk to Joe, and Ron says, okay, here's what we're going to do. 
you're going to tell them a couple sea stories, and then I'm going to break it down how the script's going to work. I said, okay, cool. I got halfway through my sea story, and he says, I love it. Let's do it. Listen, I've got Josh Hartnett. I just did Black Hawk Down with him. I've got Josh. Now we need the older detective. So I might be able to get Bruce Willis. I'm not sure yet, but let me let me get back to you guys. <laughs> By the time we get back to Ron's office five minutes away, we got business affairs on the phone, and they already want to do the deal. And my manager calls me uh, two days later and says, are you sitting down? I said, yeah. He says, we got Harrison Ford to do the old, the old cop. He's going to play you. <laughs> I said, so you got to be shitting me. Awesome. <laughs> so, wow. so, yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. We had a good time. That's amazing. That's it, it just Things just kind of fell in place. I had about a 15-year run there. And, and then when Tom wanted to do this book, I started getting serious about it again. And kind of, I was half-ass retired, you know, out in Idaho selling a few houses here and there and playing around, you know, but, but now we're going to, we're working on a second book. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, we had so many, we discussed a lot of cases in here. Yes. Chapter 18, we get into a little bit and uh, Tom says, you know, we really should do a second book about that whole era. Yeah. We handle a lot of cases together. And so uh, we had this idea that I think we'll do a book that will maybe have 15 or 20 cases and it's a perfect book for the airport. Somebody's flying to Chicago. They got four or five hours to kill. They could read two or three cases, and yep. And then later they like read an anthology. It's, yeah. it's kind of an anthology kind of thing. Yeah. So wow. Then do you get? Did you guys keep? I mean, you t- you reference in the book that you guys kept notebooks, very detailed notebooks about everything that was have journals. I guess that, that's funny too because I I have a four drawer file cabinet full of ideas and things I'd written down over the years. And Tom, same way. Wow. And we really never really, we never talked about it that much. But when we started in the book, I was telling Tom, I said, you know, sometimes when we were out drinking or we had some couple of New York guys here, whatever, and we're whining and dining them. Remember, I used to go to the bathroom for, you know, quite often while we were out because I'd sit in a stall and I'd make notes so I wouldn't forget. Wow. (laughs) All right. And Tom says, I used to do the same thing. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) So by the time we put all these notes together, wow, we've got this thing down. Yeah. So, yeah. Luckily, we did keep all those notes, and on all, I, I look back now on some of these cases, I go, wow, I didn't realize I have remembered that much about it. You know, sure, you know, sure. Fun. If there's any case you could go back to and solve that's been unsolved, what would it be and why? There was a case I handled in Hollywood. The victim was Fred Rauschenberg, and he was pretty well known around Hollywood. I think his brother's a famous artist, if I'm not mistaken. and. I really thought I could solve it, and I suspected there was an executive for Union Oil. And to me, it would look like it was a, uh, a gay love triangle. And it was hard to get at because he was an executive for Union Oil, hard guy to get to talk to. And then the third party, he was kind of a, he was, he was gay, but he was also part of that Purple, uh, purple Hill gang, the, a gay gangster kind of thing. If I could go back, I would have done, done things a little bit different. But I did walk in. He had the penthouse apartment at the Union Oil Building. And I'm with a partner of mine that he says, you know, he says, you really going to talk to this guy? I said, yeah, we're going to talk to him. He's a murder suspect. We walk in, the secretary says, oh, he's busy right now. Um, you'll have to wait. So I said, I'm not waiting for anything. So I walked right in his office, and he's on the phone. And my partner's going, whoa, what are you doing? <laughs> The guy's on the phone. I grabbed the phone out of his hand and slammed it down. I said, get up. I want to talk to you. <laughs> it's like a movie. <laughs> and the fact that the way he handled it, I, I, he, was just, he was just dirty as hell. I knew he was dirty. Because no guy would put up with that if he was completely innocent. Sure. 
So yeah, that was that was one case I remember that I wish I would have pushed a little harder. I think I could have gotten him. Uh, another one, a guy killed his mother, and I I couldn't prove it. Those two kind of stick in my mind because I more, I solved most of my cases. Yeah. But those wow. two stand out because I didn't. Going back to the summer of 84, 85, how involved were you with the Richard Ramirez Night Stalker case? It was being handled in our office. The team sat right next to us. We all worked in the same division. That's what you, that was a spooky case. We, we did a lot of, uh, had a lot of conversation about Richard Ramirez. Even when he went up to San Francisco and, uh, and killed people there. Richard Ramirez was the first time I ever slept with a gun under my pillow. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> he was a... He was what everybody fears, what they call a hot power, hot prowl rapist. Where he would go in when people are home, and he'd kill the husband and rape the rape the wife. And that's a creepy guy. And so we were all we were all really nervous about when he was before he was caught. And the interesting thing about uh, about Richard Ramirez was that when he was captured, that was like the end of the serial killer era. There was still a South Side Slayer that was killing prostitutes. Right. There, there were several different people killing prostitutes. It wasn't just one guy. But the serial killer era kind of ended at Richard Ramirez, and uh, we're, we're all pretty relieved. Was, wow, you could sit back, you got to catch a breath. We didn't. We just didn't have that many serial killers right after that. You know, during you know, that that time, it was the summer of the '84 Olympics. Yeah, and not only that, but you know, carried over to '85. But um, we had such heat wave. You know, both Lauren and I were young kids here in L.A., you know, living in, in the heart of L.A. And, you know, yeah. it's so hot that if you if your power went out, AC went out, I mean, people were still sleeping with the windows shut. Absolutely. Because the Night Stalker. I mean, it was it was true fear. It was, you know, people it was, were terrified. Yeah. Oh, everybody was terrified. I yeah. mean, my parents, everybody, you know, because you never knew where he would, you know, strike next. Yeah. And, and, you know, I just I just learned this not too long ago. His first victim is down the street from where I live now. Wow. Literally. I live in New York. One of his first victims was in Glassell Park, and I believe she was oh, an yeah. elderly lady. I, I remember that case. And, I mean, he did awful things to her. It wasn't just like a break, and it's like... That gets into the occult. He, yes, he yes. Was one of these, he had the pentagram. Yeah, he and, carved and, the pentagram into her body, oh, gouged yeah. her eyes out. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, holy shit. He, I'm was, like, he was a really creepy dude, didn't yeah. no question about it, yeah. Do you think there's anything that links these serial killers, like... There's something in their DNA or something in their brain. I've read a lot about like a lot of these serial killers have the same astrological sign. Like, do you think there's any connection? I don't think I'd buy that. But what I would say is that it has an awful lot to do with their uh, with growing up. There's a psychological profile of these guys that they talk about. The three the big signs of antisocial behavior are bedwetting, cruelty to animals and fire setting. Oh. Wow. And a guy like Bill Bonin, who was the, the freeway killer, killed 21 young boys. He was a nasty guy. He lit fires when he was a kid. He tortured animals. He was just, every, he was right down the line. And the governor at the time, Pete Wilson, said he was a poster child for serial killers. This hmm. guy was, if you read his profile from the time he was a young boy, he was molested by his father, by his grandfather. He was put into a... a, a home and he was molested there and then when he got older he went in the army and he raped a couple of the female uh, soldiers while he was in the army jeez uh yeah it, but you when you read this profile he's it's like the perfect so i'd say it's more about how i think how they grew up especially kids that are molested young young they quite could be become sociopaths and all sociopaths aren't murderers either you know some yeah 
lot of politicians are sociopaths. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Point taken. Um, can we talk about Casey Anthony? Just because I just want to get your thoughts on it. I just don't understand how she got off. I just like the evidence was there. Like, and and what happens to someone like that, that in my opinion, gets away with murder and like, what is her life like now? You know, there'll always be a stigma attached. Yeah. And some people do beat cases. I mean, if you have a lot of money, sometimes you can beat cases <laughs> as we know. Yes. Um, how they feel after, I, I think in their own head, if, if they're, if they actually did it, I think OJ is actually is a good example. I think he's actually convinced himself that he didn't do it. Right. Yeah, I can see her convincing and, herself. And I think she she's the too. same way. That's how I feel about her. And I, I remember when uh, when the OJ case first started, um, I was up fishing up in Bishop, and there was an old TV in this little cafe where we were eating, and it was black and white TV, and there's no sound on it. And I look up, and first I see the, the famous Bronco, you know. And then Tom comes on the scene, on the, on the camera, and I'm saying, what the hell's going on? So I called Tom. I said, what the hell's going on? He says, you haven't heard? I said, no, I've been fishing. He says, OJ killed his ex-wife and, uh, and her boyfriend. I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, you think he actually did it? And he says, I wish all the cases we handled were this good. Wow. jeez. <laughs> oh, and Tom doesn't bullshit. I mean, I knew that he, he had this guy dead to rights. And he was just close to copping out to Tom until he got lawyered up. Oh, man. So, I mean, that's, but there's a good example. Yeah. How did he beat it? Look at the attorneys he had. Right. And they would, they, they put Turner, they put Fern, uh, Furman on, on trial. Yeah. yeah. But I'm surprised because Jose Baez was like a new attorney. Yeah, true, yeah, right? He was. Yeah, he wasn't true, like yeah. a seasoned yeah. He wasn't attorney. a dream team. Yeah. No, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it was like, what went wrong? And like, I'm surprised she's still alive. Like, I know people are so angry and I'm surprised she's not hurt somewhere yeah. and i keep going back to oj because i'm surprised oj is alive yeah right? yeah with, yeah. with uh, the victim's dad is you know devastated yeah you know uh, yeah that's a case where it, I, I look at that case and i work with dna personally in my career every uh -huh. every day uh -huh. so i look at that case and i'm like I, I knew when they were presenting all that evidence because it was just weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and right. statistics and i'm like there's 12 dumb people on that jury <laughs> All they have to do is they just confuse him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they have to just confuse yeah. him with just statistics and just say, you know, uh, corrupt police, corrupt, you know, this and this, and all, and, you know, and that's it. That's how he yeah. got off. Simple, you know. And there's no way. I mean, I, everything I know of what I do daily in science, there's no way that it wasn't him. You know, uh, there is nobody else. That, that, that nothing ever led to no. anybody else. No, nothing, nothing. And there is another thing that we're going to do in the next book is we're going to have as a feature in the book. Uh, Tom wants to put in tidbits of things that never came out at the end of each chapter of our book. Oh, oh, we're going to cool. feed OJ as a thread through it because he was so involved in that case that uh, we're going to have that as part of the book. Oh, that's, oh, that's, that's going to be interesting. That's great. Yeah, I, I think that'll work for us really well. When do you think that book's going to come out? Uh, we're working on books. There's a lot of material. <laughs> <laughs> trying to decide which cases we're going to use. I've got a couple that, I, that would be their own book. I, I handled a triple uh, called the Pen Pal Murders. It's a triple murder case in West L.A. And uh, these Pen Pal, these uh, Lonely Hearts women, helped these guys get out of prison and end up killing three people. What? You know, <gasps> in a home invasion robbery. Oh, jeez. It's great. It, it, it's, a, it's made for a movie. I mean, I'm, but that's one of the cases. And I traveled all over the country on that case, my partner and I. 
interesting case. Well, Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Get Malice in Wonderland, the inside story of the police investigation of the Laurel Canyon murders by Tom Lang and Robert Souza, available everywhere now. Yes. Thank you, Mama. I want to say one more thing. Yeah, yeah of course. I, I want to get this in. Of course. Uh, my granddaughter came with me today. Yes. yes. We, lo- we love her. From Dead yeah, Posey. I love her, I love her too. <laughs> and her and Tony, Dead Posey. Yes. Uh, they are just knocking it dead. They're all over the country, and, and I'm just so proud of her, and that's how I met you guys. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Special thanks to yeah. Danielle for yes. setting that Thank up. You. Seriously. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Big up Dead Posey. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was a very entertaining. That was a Boo Crew Podcast, episode 115. Special thanks to our guest, Robert Souza. Get his book, Malice in Wonderland, the inside story of the police investigation of the Laurel Canyon murders, wherever books are sold and on Kindle. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, stay healthy, stay safe, and sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew, for horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.